I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. A tidal wave of increased global regulation and fines has made Know Your Customer or KYC compliance more important than ever. Businesses that previously got away with treating KYC compliance as a check-the-box operation now find themselves facing an immediate future filled with questions and penalties should they fail to abide by a network of domestic laws and international standards intended to ferret out terrorism and money laundering. It's an issue fintech firms are trying to navigate and solve as data has gone digital in a post-pandemic world. But what's the current state of government anti-money laundering enforcement? Where have been the fines, and what does this tell us about the current arc of regulation and where it may be headed? Well, to tackle these questions, I'm delighted to have Ian Henderson, the CEO of Kicker, that's K-Y-C-K-R, a reg tech firm specializing in compliance that has authored a pretty interesting report, canvassing the world and examining some of the biggest fines of the year. With their fingers on some pretty interesting data, I thought it'd be fun to get them on the show to figure out just how naughty or nice the industry has been. Ian, thanks so much for joining the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So let's start off with your report. Um, Maybe you can give the readers a sense of just what's in it and, and what are some of the 10,000-foot lessons that, that, that you derived? I, I guess the core message coming out from the review that we did was that uh, the penalties and punishments for a failure uh, to adequately understand your customers and prevent money laundering and the finance of terrorism uh, has been increasing. It's been increasing for a number of years now. Uh, and last year, our calculations showed that the total value of the penalties issued uh, to different banks across the world uh, exceeded 3.2 billion US dollars. Could you walk us through the the methodology in terms of how you got this data and how you compiled the report? Because it really is quite expansive and covers so many different parts of the world. Yeah, so it it was a relatively straightforward thing to do because obviously when people are punished, uh, part of the the reason for punishing them is uh, not just to punish them, but to make sure everyone else knows they have been punished. Uh, So this information gets into the public domain very quickly. I guess one of the points to note is that most of the crimes uh, that have been committed that have generated the fines that we calculated in calendar 2020 happened a number of years ago. Uh, And obviously it takes a while for investigations to happen, for the the toing and froing between the banks and the regulator to reach its natural uh, endpoint, but that's the, the process with which it goes through. But, but basically, we went through every single regulatory disclosure uh, globally uh, to find who had been uh, who had been punished. We drew a line at 100,000 US dollars because obviously there are many, many, many more fines uh, than we have done. We, we, we drew the line at 100, 100K uh, and basically calculated uh, what happened in each country uh, as a consequence of that. Is there any region or or, or regulator that seems to be more uh, intense or energized when it comes to levying um, fines? I think the energy is probably pretty consistent globally. uh, But if you look at quantums for the similar type of failing, then I think it's pretty 
clear to see that the Americas probably are giving uh, disproportionately uh, higher uh, value penalties. Having said that, the, the biggest single penalty issued last year was to Westpac in Australia, you know, 1.3 billion Australian dollar uh, penalty for some pretty uh, significant uh, failings uh, in that part of the world. Are there any sort of qualitative differences in terms of um, what kind of conduct is leading to the fines? I mean, you know, is, is this just a reporting issue or are there sort of internal governance things that arise that, that happen to sort of exacerbate their fines, especially when, again, when you're canvassing all these very interesting uh, areas, the United States, Australia, as you had mentioned, um, even parts of uh, South America and Africa? Yeah. So I, I guess the one thing that, that underpins this is that there's no single reason uh, for it. You know, historically, a lot of the fines were around poor onboarding. You did not understand the customer, the shareholders, uh, the principals, the directors, etc., who were in that business and the nature of what that business did. So the early focus was on onboarding. I would say it's probably fair to say that most of the banks have now sorted out uh, their onboarding uh, processes. So relatively few of the fines now are for poor onboarding. It tends to to be uh, not being on top of the transactions being undertaken by their customers. It tends to be uh, ceasing to, you know, continually continually monitor uh, what your customers are doing and who is doing it. So therefore, you're not keeping your information up to date. It was a picture perfect onboarding file at date of uh, customer sign up. But two, three, four, five years down the line, if you've not kept that information up to date, and many haven't, then that seems to be a source of a chunk of the penalties. So the the two main reasons are not really performing perpetual KYC and not monitoring transactions adequately. Yeah, you know th- that's 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 really interesting. You know, you um, I've, I've I've read some of uh, the the work coming out of Kicker and this idea of of perpetual uh, compliance. Um, do do you think that that the drive or, or this new need, you know, the fact that you as you're identifying it, the 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 fines and the KYC fines are coming no longer just from the onboarding, but as, as you mentioned, from from really the ongoing re- compliance responsibilities. Is this a reflection of new regulatory developments, or is this a a reflection of new kinds of technology um, either driving the need for perpetual compliance, or is it that new technology is is sort of raising the expectations of regulators as as to compliance um, uh, among banks? So I I think it's both. I guess there's a chicken and an egg here. Uh, uh, The chicken in the sense is the regulator. So it's the regulation that's driving a lot of this activity. Uh, And then guess what? You know, technology is playing catch up to to help facilitate compliance with that regulation. Uh, And I guess what what most banks have done, and I've spent 30 years of my career working for for various banks, uh, they've attempted, they've basically applied a risk-based approach. So if it's what looks like a high-risk customer, we will review them every year. If it's a medium-risk customer, we will review them every three years. And if it's a low-risk customer, we'll review them every five years. And the regulators are waking up to this and saying, well, actually, how can you possibly know your customer if the last time you reviewed it was four years ago? The nature of the business could have changed. The ownership structure could have changed. The directors could have changed. There could be some bad agents uh, involved now. So it's a very obvious thing for the regulators to say. uh, And they're now starting to uh, put some uh, some bite uh, to those observations. You know, th- th- that's really interesting because in part, that would seem to suggest that uh, regardless of your size, and, and especially given the fact that a lot of these banks are changing and, you know, either through mergers and acquisitions or just through changing their business models and ownership and the like, you know, um, 
that you know the 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 requirement that you know your customer is 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 one that requires in and of itself some kind of um uh, perpetual engagement at a very least you know w- with with those customers and 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 it, it, that could impact um really the the i guess their their operations and and their cost of operations uh, but just sort of returning to that original so some of your original um observations here uh, it, are you getting a sense when the fines are being levied, um, and this goes to your original observation? Are, are you seeing more fines in terms of the quant, in terms of the number of fines, right? Or, or is there just more enforcement? Um, uh, it, it seems to your original observations seem to suggest that Australia had had one really big enforcement matter, but but generally, what are we seeing more of? Sort of more fines. Or more enforcement. Yeah. So, uh, but there's a couple of things here. So, re- regulation is constantly changing because guess what? Bad agents are trying to stay one step ahead. Uh, so, uh, the, you, you find so if I take Europe as an example. So, we, last year we uh, we saw the fifth anti-money laundering directive go live in January uh, of 2020, uh, and hot in its heels is the sixth money the sixth money laundering directive, which was issued uh, in December of last year, but has to be implemented by uh, the summer of this year. So, regulation is ever increasing. Is, is point one. So therefore, the net that you can be caught in uh, is, is increasing. And I say that's primarily driven by, by bad agents being being smart and, and trying to stay one step ahead uh, of, of the regulation. So I think that's the primary driver. If you did some historical analysis over time, then from year to year, it varies. Sometimes there's more fines, but of a lower you know, aggregate value. So therefore, uh, smaller average. Uh, other years, it's a smaller number of fines, uh, but of a much bigger value. Uh, and then other years, there's, there's different locations. So, for example, one of the parts of the world that was interesting in the last year uh, was the Nordics, uh, you know, the Scandinavian countries. We saw some quite significant penalties taking place there. And, you know, if you looked over the previous few years, that was not an area where you saw uh, much activity in the space. So there's no common rule uh, that applies. The only thing I can say that is consistent is regulation. You know, a time in a COVID world where the regulators are relaxing capital rules for banks and solvency rules for insurance companies, they're certainly not making it easier to launder money or finance terrorism. Have you seen any trends in Asia in terms of engagement on AML? And uh, are there any differences qualitatively or in terms of penalties with the rest of the world? Yeah, so... Uh, I, I, I don't think there's any part of the world that's in the vanguard uh, here in terms of, of in the lead. This this is a game where, uh, you know, having differential performance is ultimately unhelpful. So I think you'll always find that there's a there's a flight to the high water mark, uh, if, if you follow me. Uh, and I don't think Asia is any, is any different uh, in, in that regard. You know, we, we have seen fines applied in, in, in Asia PAC. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly do not perceive any significant difference uh, in Asia as I say, there's a there, there's no real scope for uh, for, for differential uh, activity here. Uh, I think everyone's trying to to apply a fairly consistent uh, approach, and obviously because all the regulators talk to each other on a regular basis, one person's good ideas is very quickly shared. One story that you often hear is that AML is sometimes un, you know unevenly enforced, with regulators more likely to target international banks. Uh, than their own. Is there something to this and, and does it show up in your data? 
So there's two angles here. So I don't think there is a, a different approach applied by a local regulator to its domestic banks versus the international subsidiaries. Uh, that I don't think that is the case at all. I think it's a common uh, template that is applied. But if you think about it, uh, if you want to disguise transactions, if you want to disguise activity, if you want to facilitate laundering, then the more complex structure you have makes it a bit easier. Uh, and therefore, if there's an international angle to what the business is performing, then guess what? They'll have to go to the international banks to provide their banking services, uh, and therefore you might get caught uh, in that sense. So I guess two answers to your question. Uh, first one is, I, I think there's a genuine level playing field, international to domestic, in each in each country of the world. Uh, but I think the reality is uh, smart uh, smart bad guys uh, will, uh, will go uh, international, and therefore it's usually international-orientated banks that get caught in the net more frequently. Was was there any region or country, you know, uh, when you looked at your data and, and you did your annual sort of assessment, was there any region or country that, that surprised you? Yeah, I think I touched on it earlier when I talked about the Nordics. So Sweden in particular and some of their activities in the, in the Baltics uh, ended up uh, being uncovered. Uh, so seeing fines in, in the Scandinavian uh, region was peculiar uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but I guess it comes back to the old adage that what goes around comes around. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, next year when we do the same survey, I'm sure there'll be another surprise uh, will jump out next year. I think the thing that, I guess, was a surprise but wasn't was the fact that this is happening globally. There's no part of the world where this is not a problem. So this study obviously focused on, on banks, but we, we, we live very much now in this world of DeFi, of decentralized finance, at least if we were going to talk to most people in you know, the, the fintech or, or cryptocurrency business. But uh, you, know, you guys have been a bit out there, you know, really against the idea of decentralized repositories. And I guess there is a kind of an AML angle to where, what you're getting at. But, but maybe you can explain what's precisely your take on this and, and, and what do you see as the best manner for handling issues like data? Yeah, so the, the, it's a very complex question. Well, I guess a straightforward to ask question, but a very complex one in which to attempt to answer because obviously the, the cryptocurrency uh, world is uh, ever evolving. And obviously in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some significant uh, interest uh, in Bitcoin uh, again in, in that regard. And I guess the, the challenge that regulators are going to face is how, how do you try to get your arms around something as fast moving and potentially amorphous as, uh, as, as crypto? Uh, the world that we have tended to typically inhabit but from a KYC perspective, has been much more straightforward. You know, it is either corporate entities or private individuals. Uh, there's a compulsion in most countries of the world to have that information held in in local company registers, uh, and therefore there's a you know it's actually a criminal offence in most countries of the world not to keep your corporate data up to date. Uh, and therefore, while it's while it's decentralised in the sense that it's national in the states, it is you know down to uh, individual state level in Canada, provincial uh, level, but but typically. You you will have national, uh, you know, sources, and therefore, what the what you know financial organisations have to do is access, you know, a couple hundred plus global registers to keep on top of all of the information that they need. So it run, runs somewhat contrary in the corporate world to the crypto world. Would be my main observation. Obviously, this is an international report with lots of international dimensions. Uh, when you consider digitization arising in emerging economies, in Africa and parts of South America, 
of, of which many are technologically quite sophisticated with plenty of talent and know-how, uh, is this something that's showing up in your data in any way? Yeah, so there's, there's a, again, there's a couple of angles there. I think the digitization journey is not unique to you know the, you know, the Southern American countries uh, and Africa. It's, it's a global phenomenon, and certainly COVID has accelerated the digital transformation uh, programs of banks. Uh, but but to be candid, uh, you know, you, the, a, an individual organisation is only as good as its in-house financial crime team, uh, and therefore, uh, and also you know the, the bad actors that are happening in, in those individual parts of the world. So when they conspire together. Uh, then, then it can be problematic. But again, our report has shown that uh, there's no differential, you know, negative uh, story in, in in South America or indeed uh, the African countries. So again, I, th- I think it's a, it's a global issue and not a sub-regional issue. And thanks so much. This is super interesting and uh, we'll be looking forward to your report next year. Thank you very much. AML compliance is clearly no longer optional for legacy financial institutions, but what my conversation with Ian really underscored is just how fast and far AML enforcement has grown. Now, Ian's research really focused on banks, but as many of our listeners will realize, the same issues, if not more, attach to fintechs. And what this means for the industry could be more complicated than one might think. On the one hand, some fintech firms making waves in the regtech space are more comfortable with the big data and machine learning capacities that are poised to revolutionize the space. But others that specialize in disintermediating other aspects of underwriting may not necessarily be, which can't help but make you wonder just what the AML headlines will look like in 2022. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.